Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Isabels, Chapter One This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part Second The Isabels, Chapter One Through good and evil report in the varying fortune of that struggle which Don Jose had characterised in the phrase The fate of national honesty trembles in the balance, the Gould Concession, Imperium in Imperio, had gone on working. The square mountain had gone on pouring its treasure down the wooden chutes to the unresting batteries of stamps. The lights of San Tome had twinkled night after night upon the great limitless shadows of the Campo. Every three months the silver escort had gone down to the sea as if neither the war nor its consequences could ever affect the ancient Occidental state, secluded beyond its high barrier of the Cordillera. All the fighting took place on the other side of that mighty wall of serrated peaks, lorded over by the white dome of Higuerota, and as yet unbreached by the railway, of which only the first part, the easy campo part from Salaco to the Ivy Valley at the foot of the pass, had been laid. Neither did the telegraph line cross the mountains yet. Its poles, like slender beacons on the plain, penetrated into the forest fringe of the foothills cut by the deep avenue of the track, and its wire ended abruptly in the construction camp at the white deal table supporting a morse apparatus in a long hut of planks with a corrugated iron roof overshadowed by gigantic cedar trees, the quarters of the engineer in charge of the advanced section. The harbour was busy too with the traffic in railway material and with the movements of troops along the coast. The OSN company found much occupation for its fleet. Costaguana had no navy, and apart from a few coast guard cutters, there were no national ships except a couple of old merchant steamers used as transports. Captain Mitchell, feeling more and more in the thick of history, found time for an hour or so during an afternoon in the drawing-room of the Casa Gould, where, with a strange ignorance of the real forces at work around him, he professed himself delighted to get away from the strain of affairs. He did not know what he would have done without his invaluable Nostromo, he declared. Those confounded Costaguana politics gave him more work, he confided to Mrs Gould, than he had bargained for. Don José Avellanos had displayed in the service of the endangered Ribiera government an organising activity and an eloquence of which the echoes reached even Europe. For, after the new loan to the Ribiera government, Europe had become interested in Costaguana. The sala of the provincial assembly in the municipal buildings of Sulaco, with its portraits of the liberators on the walls and an old flag of Cortes preserved in a glass case above the president's chair, had heard all these speeches, the early one containing the impassioned declaration, Militarism is the enemy, the famous one of the trembling balance, delivered on the occasion of the vote for the raising of a second Sulaco regiment in the defence of the reforming government, and when the provinces again displayed their old flags, proscribed in Gutzman Bento's time, there was another of those great orations when Don José greeted these old emblems of the War of Independence brought out again in the name of new ideals. The old idea of federalism had disappeared, for his party did not wish to revive old political doctrines. They were perishable. They died. 
but the doctrine of political rectitude was immortal. The Second Salako Regiment, to whom he was presenting this flag, was going to show its valour in a contest for order, peace, progress, for the establishment of national self-respect without which, he declared with energy, we are a reproach and a byword amongst the powers of the world. Don José Avellanos loved his country. He had served it lavishly with his fortune during his diplomatic career, and the later story of his captivity and Barbara's ill-usage under Gutzman Bento was well known to his listeners. It was a wonder that he had not been a victim of the ferocious and summary executions which marked the course of that tyranny, for Gutzman had ruled the country with a sombre imbecility of political fanaticism. The power of supreme government had become, in his dull mind, an object of strange worship, as if it were some sort of cruel deity. It was incarnated in himself, and his adversaries, the Federalists, were the supreme sinners, objects of hate, abhorrence and fear, as heretics would be to a convinced inquisitor. For years he had carried about the tale of the army of pacification all over the country, a captive band of such atrocious criminals who considered themselves most unfortunate at not having been summarily executed. It was a diminishing company of nearly naked skeletons, loaded with irons, covered with dirt, with vermin, with raw wounds, all men of position, of education, of wealth, who had learned to fight amongst themselves for scraps of rotten beef thrown to them by soldiers, or to beg a negro cook for a drink of muddy water in pitiful accents. Don José Avellanos, clanking his chains amongst the others, seemed only to exist in order to prove how much hunger, pain, degradation and cruel torture a human body can stand without parting with the last spark of life. Sometimes interrogatories backed by some primitive method of torture were administered to them by a commission of officers hastily assembled in a hut of sticks and branches and made pitiless by the fear for their own lives. A lucky one or two of that spectral company of prisoners would perhaps be led tottering behind a bush to be shot by a file of soldiers. Always an army chaplain, some unshaven dirty man, girt with a sword and with a tiny cross embroidered in white cotton on the left breast of a lieutenant's uniform, would follow, cigarette in the corner of the mouth, wooden stool in hand, to hear the confession and give absolution. For the citizen saviour of the country, Gutzman Bento was called thus officially in petitions, was not averse from the exercise of rational clemency. The irregular report of the firing squad would be heard, followed sometimes by a single finishing shot. A little bluish cloud of smoke would float up above the green bushes, and the army of pacification would move on over the savannas, through the forests, crossing rivers, invading rural pueblos, devastating the haciendas of the horrid aristocrats, occupying the inland towns in the fulfilment of its patriotic mission, and leaving behind a united land wherein the evil taint of federalism could no longer be detected in the smoke of burning houses and the smell of spilt blood. Don José Avellanos had survived that time. Perhaps, when contemptuously signifying to him his release, the citizen saviour of the country might have thought this benighted aristocrat too broken in health and spirit and fortune to be any longer dangerous. 
or perhaps it may have been a simple caprice. Gutsman Bento, usually full of fanciful fears and brooding suspicions, had sudden accesses of unreasonable self-confidence when he perceived himself elevated on a pinnacle of power and safety beyond the reach of mere mortal plotters. At such times, he would impulsively command the celebration of a solemn mass of thanksgiving, which would be sung in great pomp in the cathedral of Santa Marta by the trembling subservient archbishop of his creation. He heard it sitting in a gilt armchair placed before the high altar, surrounded by the civil and military heads of his government. The unofficial world of Santa Marta would crowd into the cathedral, for it was not quite safe for anybody of mark to stay away from these manifestations of presidential piety. Having thus acknowledged the only power he was at all disposed to recognise as above himself, he would scatter acts of political grace in a sardonic wantonness of clemency. There was no other way left now to enjoy his power but by seeing his crushed adversaries crawl impotently into the light of day out of the dark noisome selves of the Collegio. Their harmlessness fed his insatiable vanity, and they could always be got hold of again. It was the rule for all the women of their families to present thanks afterwards in a special audience. The incarnation of that strange god, El Gobierno Supremo, received them standing, cocked hat on head, and exhorted them in a menacing mutter to show their gratitude by bringing up their children in fidelity to the democratic form of government which I have established for the happiness of our country. His front teeth having been knocked out in some accident of his former herdsman's life, his utterance was spluttering and indistinct. He had been working for Costaguana alone in the midst of treachery and opposition. Let it cease now, lest he should become weary of forgiving. Don José Avellanos had known this forgiveness. He was broken in health and fortune deplorably enough to present a truly gratifying spectacle to the supreme chief of democratic institutions. He retired to Salaco. His wife had an estate in that province and she nursed him back to life out of the house of death and captivity. When she died, their daughter, an only child, was old enough to devote herself to poor papa. Miss Avellanos, born in Europe and educated partly in England, was a tall, grave girl with a self-possessed manner, a wide white forehead, a wealth of rich brown hair and blue eyes. The other young ladies of Sulaco stood in awe of her character and accomplishments. She was reputed to be terribly learned and serious. As to pride, it was well known that all the Corbelans were proud, and her mother was a Corbelan. Don José Avellanos depended very much upon the devotion of his beloved Antonia. He accepted it in the benighted way of men who, though made in God's image, are like stone idols without sense before the smoke of certain burnt offerings. He was ruined in every way, but a man possessed of passion is not a bankrupt in life. Don José Avellanos desired passionately for his country, peace, prosperity, and, as the end of the preface to Fifty Years of Misrule has it, an honourable place in the comity of civilised nations. 
In this last phrase, the minister plenipotentiary, cruelly humiliated by the bad faith of his government towards the foreign bondholders, stands disclosed in the Patriot. The fatuous turmoil of greedy factions succeeding the tyranny of Gutsman Bento seemed to bring his desire to the very door of opportunity. He was too old to descend personally into the centre of the arena at Santa Marta, but the men who acted there sought his advice at every step. He himself thought that he could be most useful at a distance in Sulaco. His name, his connections, his former position, his experience commanded the respect of his class. The discovery that this man, living in dignified poverty in the Corbelan town residence, opposite the Casa Gould, could dispose of material means towards the support of the cause, increased his influence. It was his open letter of appeal that decided the candidature of Don Vicente Ribiera for the presidency. Another of those informal state papers drawn up by Don José, this time in the shape of an address from the province, induced that scrupulous constitutionalist to accept the extraordinary powers conferred upon him for five years by an overwhelming vote of Congress in Santa Marta. It was a specific mandate to establish the prosperity of the people on the basis of firm peace at home and to redeem the national credit by the satisfaction of all just claims abroad. On the afternoon the news of that vote had reached Sulaco by the usual roundabout postal way through Caeta and up the coast by steamer, Don José, who had been waiting for the mail in the Goulds' drawing-room, got out of the rocking-chair, letting his hat fall off his knees. He rubbed his silvery short hair with both hands, speechless with the excess of joy. Amelia, my soul, he had burst out, let me embrace you, let me... Captain Mitchell, had he been there, would no doubt have made an apt remark about the dawn of a new era. But if Don José thought something of the kind, his eloquence failed him on this occasion. The inspirer of that revival of the Blanco party tottered where he stood. Mrs. Gould moved forward quickly, and as she offered her cheek with a smile to her old friend, managed very cleverly to give him the support of her arm he really needed. Don José had recovered himself at once, but for a time he could do no more than murmur, Oh, you two patriots! Oh, you two patriots! Looking from one to the other. Vague plans of another historical work, wherein all the devotions to the regeneration of the country he loved would be enshrined for the reverent worship of posterity, flitted through his mind. The historian who had enough elevation of soul to write of Gutsman Bento, Yet this monster, imbrued in the blood of his countrymen, must not be held unreservedly to the execration of future years. It appears to be true that he too loved his country. He had given it twelve years of peace, and absolute master of lives and fortunes as he was, he died poor. His worst fault, perhaps, was not his ferocity, but his ignorance. The man who could write thus of a cruel persecutor, the passage occurs in the history of Misrule, felt at the foreshadowing of success an almost boundless affection for his two helpers, for these two young people from over the sea. Just as years ago, calmly, from the conviction of practical necessity, stronger than any abstract political doctrine, Henry Gould had drawn the sword, so now, the times being changed, Charles Gould had flung the silver of the San Tomé into the fray. 
the Inglaise of Sulaco, the Costaguana Englishman of the third generation, was as far from being a political intriguer as his uncle from a revolutionary swashbuckler. Springing from the instinctive uprightness of their natures, their action was reasoned. They saw an opportunity and used the weapon to hand. Charles Gould's position, a commanding position in the background of that attempt to retrieve the peace and the credit of the Republic, was very clear. At the beginning, he had had to accommodate himself to existing circumstances of corruption so naively brazen as to disarm the hate of a man courageous enough not to be afraid of its irresponsible potency to ruin everything it touched. It seemed to him too contemptible for hot anger even. He made use of it with a cold, fearless scorn, manifested rather than concealed by the forms of stony courtesy which did away with much of the ignominy of the situation. At bottom, perhaps, he suffered from it, for he was not a man of cowardly illusions, but he refused to discuss the ethical view with his wife. He trusted that, though a little disenchanted, she would be intelligent enough to understand that his character safeguarded the enterprise of their lives as much or more than his policy. The extraordinary development of the mine had put a great power into his hands. To feel that prosperity always at the mercy of unintelligent greed had grown irksome to him. To Mrs Gould it was humiliating. At any rate, it was dangerous. In the confidential communications passing between Charles Gould, the King of Sulaco, and the head of the silver and steel interests far away in California, the conviction was growing that any attempt made by men of education and integrity ought to be discreetly supported. You may tell your friend Avayanos that I think so, Mr Holroyd had written at the proper moment from his inviolable sanctuary within the eleven-storey high factory of great affairs and shortly afterwards, with a credit opened by the Third Southern Bank, located next door but one to the Holroyd building, the Ribierist party in Costaguana took a practical shape under the eye of the administrator of the San Tome mine. And Don José, the hereditary friend of the Gould family, could say, Perhaps, my dear Carlos, I shall not have believed in vain. End of Part Second The Isabels Chapter One